fishermen. We got fishermen this this uh, passage. So I'm curious if there are any fisher folk in the in the room today. Raise a hand if you are a, not a mer person, but come on, Larry. Just you know, be bold. There we go. Wow, we've got lots of pointing going on over here. All right, this side. Did I? Okay, we've got. All right. Well, I'm with the majority in this case. I am emphatically not a fisher. Uh, the one time that I recall landing a fish, uh, I think I was a teenager, and I had a Zebco rod and reel, and if you're old enough, you'll know just how craptastic those were. And I was on a houseboat on the Delta, and somebody gave me a treble hook, and uh, I didn't know that those weren't allowed at the time, and uh, so I put that on there, and I, I have no idea what I used for bait, but I do know that after I waited a while, there was weight on my line, and so I reeled in a middleweight catfish, and the, the reason I'm telling you this story is because I am not a fisherman, and here's one way we know. As the fish came into view, I realized that the the barb of one of the, the three hooks on the treble hook had caught the fish on its forehead, basically. And so the fish was looking at me like, you're an idiot. And the fish wasn't wrong, of course, but I, I'm like, well, I caught you, so, you know. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a fisherman. Uh, that was the last time that I landed a fish, and I really don't think I'm going to attempt another one in no small part because I married a woman who won't eat anything that lived in the water. Um, and uh, so I'm supporting her in that way. <laughs> so, so I'm a greenhorn when it comes to fishing, but these guys weren't greenhorns. And while Lake Galilee is not, you know, deadliest catch kind of environs, it was absolutely prone to having storms uh, come up on little notice. It wasn't the safest kind of employment that you could have. The other thing that you should know about these guys is um, these probably aren't people who were living hand to mouth. They, they, they probably were living a, I don't know if comfortable is the word in you know the, the turn of that millennium, but uh, they weren't impoverished, neither were they affluent. Does that make sense? Uh, they're just plain, hardworking, common people, like a lot of the people that you and I know, maybe. Although, around here, that's a little harder than some places. Um, and that's who Matthew is describing Jesus visiting in this passage. So, it's a really ordinary, kind of blue-collar-ish bunch that he's he's coming to. And my picture of this doesn't have... Uh, deadliest catch bleeping of the scene. Um, hopefully you can filter that out. Uh, shame on me for mentioning it. Before I then go back into the passage that Don just read, let me pray. Uh, God, where I am scattered, will you focus the minds of those who are reading your word and listening to what I have to say to teach, but also to preach. And I ask that um, the takeaways would be yours. I ask that the application to individual lives would be something that you dictate. And I pray that in line with, I think, what Matthew is trying to communicate here, and I think the desire of many of our hearts. So I pray in confidence in 
the authority of the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so back, back to the text. We'll just quickly go through it. It's short enough. Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee. Um, you know, his tinder would have said he likes walks along the, the seashore. Uh, yeah, I, I, got, I got booze from the second row. Good, good job. Yeah, there's no tinder here. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. The word used for net here, okay, Tim says this is geeking out. I, I don't know. It's a specific word. It's like a technical word. There's a generic word for net that gets used elsewhere. This one happens to be a round net with weights on the edge. You'd throw it from a boat or you'd throw it from the shallow water. It drops around the fish. You pull it in. Hopefully, you caught something. The reason that I point this out is just, again, it's not me saying that these guys were pros. They were pros. They knew what they were doing. Uh, throwing one of those apparently takes some skill. I've never seen one, but everybody seems to agree on that. They know what they're doing. But Matthew doesn't describe Jesus walking into this scenario and saying, hey, how's the fishing going, guys? Or, you know, boy, it looks like there might be a storm blowing. Nope. First words out of his mouth are, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people, which, if you take it in the wrong way, sounds kind of creepy, right? Fishing for people from the overpass, you know, like, how, how, does, this, how does this work? And I was thinking about this with my, my sales and marketing hat on. As a pitch, I think this leaves something to be desired. Um, now, this is coming from a guy who did marketing at a startup company, and I said a bunch of stupid things, including improves performance up to 25% or more. And you go, Mike, why did you even include a number? <laughs> it could be anywhere, right? Well, I was, anyway, stupid things are said by marketing people, and this is not one that would even get their stamp of approval. It's, in a way, strangely vague. Fisher people don't get it. Um, it's also strangely specific. It's people-focused. Let me look at it a different way. Is it a good altar call? So if, if we think that, you know, somebody's here and they're, they're close to making a decision to follow Jesus, is the way to seal the deal to say, Jesus says, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. Doesn't work for me. I mean, you know, talk to me afterwards if, if that really resonated with you, because I'd love to, to hear about that, and uh, let's talk more. So Jesus isn't saying this because I should copy it, is what I'm saying there. I'm asking questions about this because when Don read it, we already heard what happened. At once, they left their nets and followed him. At once. What just happened here? You know, like, and then immediately, oops, it happens again. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with dad, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Who walks around on the lake side calling people to leave their jobs and their families? Like, what kind of a person does that? Who is this Jesus? And Matthew's got a really strong take on that, and we're going to talk about that. But before we explore more what Matthew is saying, 
I want to look in three other places, and two of them are in other gospel accounts. Uh, so Matthew is one of the three gospels we call synoptic gospels, which comes from an expression meaning view together, basically. And it's called that because these writers have a lot of writing in, in common, as you'll see in a moment, but also the perspective from which they write is similar, even though their literary purposes are different. I'll talk about that in a minute. And you're like, how did I wander into a literature lecture? It's not that. We're talking about God's word and, and some things you want to know when you're reading it. Okay, similarities are why the synoptic gospels are called synoptic gospels. And if you look at the parallel passage in Mark, you will see it's very similar. It's in Mark 1, so Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. And it says, you know what? It says virtually the same thing up until verse 20, the end of the story. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, still sounds the same, with the hired men and followed him. He adds a clause there. I'm a dad. So I like this clause that he adds. Because for Matthew's passage, they could well be leaving dad to, you know, do whatever needed to be done that day. In, in Mark's passage, I'm pleased to find out that, no, no, dad's got some, some hired men who are going to help him fish. They haven't left him in the lurch. I don't really want my kids to leave me in the lurch, you know. Hey, weren't you holding the ladder when I, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but nonetheless, they followed immediately. The other thing that this conveys that gives us a little background on the situation is this family business of commercial fishing was apparently bringing in enough money that they could hire people to help them bring in more, right? In order to hire employees, you've got to have some money coming in. So these are for sure not people living hand to mouth on a daily basis at any rate. So. They're not on the edge of starvation. The family business has employees. That's all I gather from Mark's account that's different. How about the third synoptic gospel, which is Luke? The account of the calling of the disciples. I was going to say that it's not included, this one, but I don't really mean that because what Luke tells is another story, a miracle, and then he caps it off with something that sounds really similar, and that's in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So Jesus is in Simon Peter's boat teaching. So apparently they already know each other to some extent. And we get that impression um, from, from the Gospels in general. Matthew is the one who it's really abrupt. Okay, fine. He's teaching from Peter's boat. He tells him to go out to fish. Now Simon Peter, who has two first names like Jonathan Taylor, who has three names, never mind, Simon Peter has two names. Um, you can call him Simon, you can call him Peter. Uh, he says in verse 5, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. So Jesus has been teaching. He finishes teaching and says, let's go fishing. Go out to the deep part of the lake. And Peter says, yeah, it's not good fishing time, Jesus. I already checked it out and I know what's going on. But because you're you, okay. He goes out there. 
Well, Luke then describes this vast haul of fish that's so much that they get their partner boat to come over and they share the bounty of the net between the two boats and both start sinking. Superabundance, right? So what's Peter's response? He fell in verse 8 at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. What an interesting response to a guy saying, Let's go fishing. You say, eh, probably not, but okay. And then you catch more than you've caught. I'm a sinful man. Is it pride? Is it, I know what I'm doing and, uh, you know, you're, you're a teacher? Is it something else? At this point in Luke's narrative, we don't know. But the rest of the story is a bit more similar to what Mark and Matthew have said. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Where have I heard that before? So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. And so a question that people often ask is, how do we reconcile these accounts? And the simplest way that I've seen people reconcile Luke with the other two is to say Luke is describing this miracle that happens that's background that Mark and Matthew don't feel is important for what they're doing. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, and you don't know, and honestly, nobody knows because none of us were there to witness it. And I bring that up because oftentimes we have three accounts and we want to, to read them together and come up with the event. We have a family friend who hates dioramas. He thinks they're really, really bad school activity because they have no educational value. Um, he's a Jewish man. He's not talking about, you know, the synoptic gospels. He's talking about log cabins and, you know, I don't know what, missions in, in uh, schools in our city. And what I want to argue is if all we do with what Matthew's doing is compare and contrast with the other gospels, suddenly we've walked away from where Matthew was going with this. We've taken his account of this out of the context it was in, and what does the context determine? It determines the meaning. So Matthew's got a point in mind in his gospel, and if all we do, now there's nothing wrong with reading the three together and saying, what, what's happening here? What more might I know about these people and the environment that they're in? But then making that the point can be a stumbling block for really understanding what's going on. So then that sort of demands the question, okay, Mike, if you don't want us to spend our time comparing these two other synoptic gospel accounts, what do you want to do? I want to look at what Matthew is saying about Jesus in this passage based on what he's saying about Jesus in his whole gospel. So what is his larger purpose? I want to look at a really strange place, which is Matthew 1.1. It's the part of Matthew where instantaneously gravity begins to pull on my eyelids because I know begats are going to happen because I used to read the King James a lot. This is the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew begins, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he's skipped a bunch of generations that he's about to break into and don't worry, we're not going there. 
But what does he condense down to? Abraham, David, to Jesus the Messiah. Who was Abraham? He was a Gentile. And God called him out of the land that he was in and gave him something to do. He gave him a purpose and he promised him a future and a destiny that Abraham never fully saw. Okay, who's David? David was a king of the nation that came from Abraham's obedience to God's call. Who was David as king? Well, he was absolutely a flawed man, but he was also a king after God's own heart, really in a unique way in Israel's history. So Matthew, when he's talking about the, who, the story he's about to tell and who the subject of his story is, he goes to two places in history. One is the called Gentile, and the other is the greatest king of the nation. And he says a third thing in that sentence, Jesus the Messiah. Later and all through his gospel, Matthew's going to describe Jesus teaching about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. Matthew describes Jesus as the Messiah here. It means the anointed one. It's a king who would fulfill all the promises that Israel had been promised for all these years, all the things that had gone horrifically wrong under all the flawed kings that they have. Fortunately, our political situation is much more naturally hopeful, and we don't have to look to God for anything in our current context, right? Huh, people are laughing. I don't understand why. Uh, So Jesus is going to be known in Matthew's gospel as the anointed one, the one who's fulfilling all these covenants that have made with Israel, have been made with Israel by God. And this, this is why Pastor Tim and I keep saying this phrase that sounds really redundant, King Jesus King. Where does that come from? It's because in the New Testament, after the gospels, there's this expression that gets used, kurios Jesus Christos. Lord, a Greek word meaning anything from emperor to sir, okay? You, you could address the emperor that way, kurios. Jesus, that's his name, Christ. Christ means anointed one. It means Messiah. What is the Messiah? It's a king. Thus, king, Jesus, king. Why do we make a big deal about that? Because for Matthew's original readers... This is a perfectly natural expectation to have. They, their hope was in a king that was going to come and set things right. You know, sort of the, the Arthurian legend, except in more real life. But we tend to lose sight of that because we, we don't really grok king. And if you don't think king, as you start in Matthew's gospel, it's hard to remember king when it's the king who's calling these disciples to follow him. And that's why I've taken this, you know, thing into the synoptic gospels and it felt like a lecture for a few minutes. I apologize a little bit, but I couldn't see another way of doing it. When you think about how a king commands subjects and how they're supposed to respond, maybe you get a better view of why it is that these men who will be disciples respond the way that they do. He's got authority, and they recognize it. 
Whether they naturally recognize it, whether they understood it fully, I don't think they did. Because the story that we hear is them not getting it, not getting it, not getting it. They get it a little, then they don't get it. They get it a little, they don't get it. Which I'm sure is unlike all the stories of those who follow Christ here, right? It's just straight up and, you know, off to the side. That's not my story. So many times I have been struck by the grace of God who is a king that didn't crush me, but he kept calling me even when I was not doing anything that would give anyone reason to believe that I could follow him. That's amazing to me. All right, let me draw one more contrast. So I said I was going to go three places, and then I went to two synoptic gospels. So the third thing, last time I'm going out of Matthew, um, this would also have been familiar to the readers of Matthew's gospel originally. It's back in the, the Old Testament book of Kings, in 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, God tells the prophet Elijah, okay? Elijah is one of the superheroes of the Old Testament. Uh, it, like everybody, he's got flaws, but he is one of the superheroes. God says, I've appointed Elisha to be the, the, your successor as prophet, so, you know, go, go see him. Verse 19, so Elijah went from there and found Elisha. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. This guy's not a supervisor. He's not a manager. He's not the guy wearing the, the day glow orange and standing on the curb chortling while other people do work. Okay, he's driving one of the teams. Elijah went up to him, threw his cloak around him. So this is a, a sign of mantle passing. We use that expression still sometimes, or at least people as old as me do. Uh, authority going from one person to another, or in this place, case, transitioning from one prophet to another, beginning a transition that's going to take a while. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. So Elijah sneaks in there, puts the cloak on him, and, and walks off. And Elisha runs over to say, whoa, 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 hang on. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? Isn't that a weird expression? So I think what Elijah is getting at here is what Matthew's getting at. Elijah is saying, I didn't call you. All I've been assigned to do is to let you know that this is happening. God's the one who makes the call. Elijah didn't make the call. So if Elisha needs to go kiss mom and dad, fantastic. If he wants to run right after, no sweat off his brow. We'll get where we're getting, whether there's a, a, you know, a potty break or not. So Elijah says, this is God's call, not mine. You're accountable to him. So Elijah left him in verse 21 and went back. Listen to this. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. We had an ox barbecue because Elisha ain't doing no more farming. This is really, really different. Elisha can't go back to what he was doing before. Like, he's burned his bridges, or his, his, he's killed his oxen, people have eaten them, the yolks are, are also toast. 
you're going, okay, Mike, I thought you were coming back from a, from a digression. Okay, this is how my brain works. This is relevant to Matthew's story in a couple of ways. First, just as with Elijah and Elisha, the call belongs to God. It's God's call. It's not my calling you, Elijah calling Elisha. It's not a human decision that it makes. So the fact that God often, mostly, uses people to communicate that call doesn't mean that it's not God's call. Does that make sense? Yes, no. More nods than shakes, great. In the case of Elijah, he says, do what you're going to do. I've done my business as the go-between. But when Jesus calls these four men in their boats to follow, it's his call. He has the authority. He is the anointed one. He is the king. He is God. And he has the authority to call on whom he will. He doesn't defer that judgment to somebody else. It's, it's his right to call. Okay, the second way the ox meat barbecue is relevant is by a way of contrast. So, while Elisha could never go back to farming, unless somehow in his prophetizing he made a bunch of money and decided to invest in oxen and yokes and farmland, uh, the disciples, though, are in a different situation. They sometimes go back and go fishing. And it doesn't always seem like they do that when they don't know what else to do or they've kind of lost hope. So there's a way in which Elisha's call requires him to turn his back on everything he's done. But the disciples aren't turning their backs on everything they've done. What they've got instead is a, a new recognition of what's really important. They didn't start with that. Jesus, as far as we can tell, didn't pick them because they got it. And he said, oh, good, you get it. You're on board. Jesus called them, and so they got it. They have a central purpose now that animates them. They have an identity that doesn't come from the way that they earn their bread. This valley is a place where we get our identity from how we earn our bread. And some places in this nation, and certainly many places in the world, that's less of a confusing thing to people. But right here, if I ask people who they are, the first thing I hear is that they're an engineer and this kind or what company they work for, you know, even the ones without tattoos uh, of their company, you know, crossed out as they, anyway, there's a, there's a way in which that corporate identity or that job function identity or that specialization identity creeps in and that's our central thing. How am I going to live as a civil engineer in the valley? How am I going to live as a teacher in the valley? How am I going to live as a cop in the valley? These men are disciples of Jesus, whether they're fishing, whether they're walking behind him, whether being sent out by him to minister, whether they're looking up like amazed and confused after he disappeared. Even when they're figuring out day-to-day -day ministry, because these are the apostles of the church, these are the ones who said, okay, this is what church is going to look like. Didn't look like this. There are similarities, but these guys are people who, they had a call from Jesus, their king, and they lived that out in all those ways and others. 
they aren't disciples either who are obsessed by rule following detached from the king behind them and that's the thing i think it's important to to throw in from matthew that matthew tells us what jesus's heart is about um, he's talking to pharisees he's quoting the prophet isaiah in matthew uh, chapter 15 verses 8 and 9 simply says these people these pharisees honor me with their lips they were really religious but their hearts are far from me they worship me in vain their teachings are merely human rules and the human tendency to religion operates on exactly that instinct but jesus called his disciples out of that context it's not about rule following it's about a person and that person jesus says is me that person matthew says is the king who was promised to be a blessing both to gentiles and to jews so that's why tim spent the past few weeks building up not a system of rules for discipleship but tenets ideas for how we can implement discipleship among ourselves do you remember them i've got a quiz so when i say good question asking do you know which of the six tenets that is what was that teaching that's right somebody knew it all right so so this is a quiz it's okay for you to call out an answer if you think you know it if you weren't here the past few weeks don't worry about it okay we do better when we know someone is watching did the answer go up there or did you just know you brought your cheat sheet okay that is also acceptable i liked how you did that in unison more is caught than taught okay hang on we're talking about fisher people here huh huh more is caught than taught what was that wow okay that's the muddiest life on life life on life okay uh, the act of advice giving, which is put into practice. Wow, mentorship. Okay. Applying God's word so our heart doesn't harden and so we grow spiritually. Whoa, okay, that was bolder. Celebrating growth. Measurement, okay. All right, I won't trouble you with tape measures for, for this one. So, uh, if, if you hadn't been there for some or all of those, that's fine. Tim's sermons are on YouTube. You can find out what's going on there. Uh, and the bottom line is, like I said, this isn't a set of rules. It's, it's values for how we interact together as disciples in Christ's kingdom. How do the disciples live this out in Matthew's story of the coming of this long-awaited king? You have to read his gospel to find out the whole thing but let me highlight three since we want to get home at some point okay they lived it out by bringing good news all right this passage is interesting matthew 9 verses 35 through 38 says jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness when he saw the crowds he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd who is the actor in all those verses so far 
It's Jesus. Jesus is doing the doing. He's doing the talking. Then he said to his disciples in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Okay, the kind of churches that I grew up in, the way they treated that was to guilt trip you into evangelizing. That is not what Matthew wanted, and it's not what I want. What Jesus is doing is seeing a human condition that grieves him, that brings him into a state of compassion, and he wants his disciples to share that view of people, seeing them not just as broken, but as salvageable through the power of Christ. And that's pretty cool. So they went to where people needed the good news of the king. He took fishermen, fishermen, mind you, and he had them assist him in what metaphor does he use? Shepherding. He took the fishermen and he made them shepherds, help him in the shepherding. What else did he do with the fishermen? Well, they helped him with uh, assisting in the harvest. So it doesn't matter what your name is, and it also doesn't matter what your job is in the kingdom of God, because Jesus gives you a job. Now, some people, Zebedee, I'm guessing that Zebedee was on board with the program of Christ because he didn't object to his sons leaving to go on this, you know, who knows what kind of adventure. But Zebedee got to stay in the boat. You and I may be people who have places that we are, and God has put us there in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in other community. And he's got an intention for us to, whatever kind of fishermen we were, there's a harvest. And there's sheep who need care. So, the harvest field in your workplace is great. Because virtually every workplace I know is incredibly secular. It's incredibly separated from any concept of the hope of the kingdom of Christ. Which means... You having an idea that Christ is the center of everything you do is automatically in conflict with the whole culture of virtually every workplace I've ever worked in. Okay, there's that. But every neighborhood has harassed sheep in it. So whether where you work is where you're going to be working for Christ, or whether your neighborhood is where you're going to be working for Christ, those both represent opportunities, and they're not the only ones. Because we understand that this is so, that we are all hands and feet of Jesus, uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to start another series that talks about how to proclaim good news in a way that's understandable, relatable. So obviously, I will not be the primary teacher there. Um, these guys lived it out by fellowship with one another in Christ. So that, that's the second thing that I, I want to pull out of the rest of Matthew. And uh, the text for that comes from Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, okay, you know what this is for, right? They're celebrating the Passover, which we remember in our practice of observing communion. And we're going to celebrate that today. We're going to partake in that today based on the, the model that Jesus made for us and the instructions he gave. When he had given thanks, he broke the bread, gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, 
When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We are still in the prior day. We're still waiting for that day when our king comes again in all the fullness and glory of his kingdom on earth, when things are finally set right, when we are fully reconciled to God through the complete transformation of all the vestiges of what's wrong with us that sin bent. Okay, you and I thus have a connection together in remembering this because we all gather around the communion table as people who are flawed, who have sinned and sadly continue to sin. Our backgrounds, our personalities, our desires are ultimately going to get out of sync, which is a hard way to establish community because sin will always drive us apart. And yet, there's something that this table celebrates, the bond of Christ, the reality of Christ living in us. His great love, his great power have overcome even our great sin. So we connect in a way that's literally eternal. So if you've got a friend here who's following Jesus, they are going to be a friend forever, even if you fight here. Because forever is the fullness of the kingdom of God. That's eternity with the Father. And we are all going to be set right at last then. I'm grateful for a king who didn't look at me as a problem. He looked at me as a person with problems. He knew that what I was doing was going to lead me to death and separation from him. And that didn't disgust him so much as it made him act and call. Jesus didn't call his disciples to show up on the Sabbath and do some, you know, religious stuff and then fade back into the woodwork. He calls you and me to ongoing relationship all the time with one another. Now, if you don't know where to start a discipleship relationship, you are among people who are equally tentative, equally maybe mystified. Reviewing the tenets that Tim talked about is not, you know, oh, well, now I know what to do. So let me, let me with this table in mind, give you another suggestion. Don't start with discipleship. Start with relationship. Start with a meal. Start it in your home or at a park or in a restaurant. But instead of letting the conversation go where gravity takes it to sports, uh, to news, to politics, to, you know, complaints about whatever. Direct it to Jesus. And what I long for is community in which I can tell you what I had to give up to follow Christ because I can trust you enough and you can listen to that without hating me. And I can further, as we get to know each other better, tell you what I feel I still have to give up to follow Christ more that's still stuck somewhere, and maybe I don't fully want to give it up, or maybe I don't know how. And out of those kind of relationships, discipleship can happen. The third thing, 
they lived it out, living lives that were literally recycled by Jesus. He didn't just take fishermen and make them fishermen. We've already said, Matthew said, he took fishermen and made them into, you know, assistant shepherds and helpers in the harvest. But he refined them into the disciples that he wanted to be. And so it seems like we read this passage virtually every week. And I want you to know that I excluded quotes from two dead guys so I could fit this in. Um, Matthew 28, we'll start from verse 16, go to 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Okay, where did Jesus call these first disciples? Galilee. This is at the end of Matthew's gospel. Do you think he might be bookending the, the disciples' life with Jesus? Okay. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus here isn't just saying, do what I did. Be, be a good person like I was a good person. Do good deeds like I good, did good deeds. Look kindly upon people who are downtrodden like I looked kindly upon people who are downtrodden. He's saying, I am the ultimate king, and you are my trusted emissaries. Go do what I showed you, but more importantly, understand that as you go, you're going in my power. And it's important to remember that because it can be difficult for us to leave our fishing boat. And I don't know what comes into your head when I say, you know, things that you haven't yet put down to follow Jesus. I've heard about all kinds of crazy obstacles that people have had. Really common ones are family. And I think it's interesting that in this context, this is a traditional culture. I'm a white guy, okay? So I don't understand traditional culture. I understand Silicon Valley culture. But... I grew up here, I went to Monta Vista High School in Cupertino, all my friends practically were Chinese and Korean, and so I got a glimpse of what traditional culture is like. And in traditional culture, you don't do what some other guy told you to do, you do what your parents told you to do. And the whole economic viability and honor of your whole family and coordinatingly, your whole community depends on your doing that properly. These guys were pulled out of that. Somehow, they were able to put down their nets and leave their boats. And somehow their dad was able to let them go and allow them to come back and fish when they had the opportunity to do so. So whether you've got to put something down for yourself, or maybe you've got a really fervent kid if you're a parent, and they scare you because they're not thinking about the practical things of life. And I want my kids to know how to earn a living, okay? And I'm for sure not allowing them to play video games in their bedrooms when they're 40. There's a baseline that I want to set. But if they're running after Jesus, if they're pursuing his call on their life, oh, you bet I'm going to step back and say, you don't have to be an engineer. You don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to be a whatever. 
I want you to pursue Christ with all you have. 